from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds, and I got to say that I am super excited for our guest professor today. Joining us on Rounds today is Dr. Joel Toff, aka the Salt Whisperer or Kidney Boy. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the internet or the World Wide Web, Dr. Toff has been at the forefront of social media as well as educational development when it comes to any and everything salt or kidney related. Joel is a board certified clinical nephrologist and assistant clinical professor at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine. He's also a partner and faculty member at St. Clair Nephrology, where he teaches learners at all stages of their training at St. John Hospital and Medical Center. Additionally, Dr. Toff serves as the medical director of St. Clair Nephrology Research. Kidney Boy is internet and social media famous and for good reason. When it comes to modern medical education modalities, he's really got the formula locked down. From Neff Madness to Neff Journal Club or Neff JC, PB Fluids and Twitter, Kidney Boy has really made some unique contributions to how we learn or can learn what are sometimes confusing concepts or approaches to common and potentially life-threatening conditions. And this is all in addition to the more standard or traditional textbooks that he's co-edited, including the Acid Base and Electrolyte Companion, which is awesome, and Nephrology Secrets. Please be sure to check those out. We'll have links to those in the show notes. So Dr. Toff, Kidney Boy, I'm so excited for you to join us. Thank you so much for joining us on Rounds. Hey, Dr. Kim, that was, a, that was a, a, an amazing introduction. Thanks a lot. I'm excited to be here. I feel like it's reaching across the aisle. Like I've, I've, done a, I've done a lot of medical ed, but I've done, spent very little time with a surgeon. I'm actually pretty excited, though we have a very collaborative relationship at our home institution. It's great. It certainly sounds like you guys are a busy trauma center. You've got the surrounding freeways, blunt trauma, and of course, the knife and gun club. So I can imagine that you're probably spending a reasonable amount of time in the surgical ICU. Yeah. Now, Joel, in the last 10 to 15 years, it really does seem like AKI or acute kidney injury has really received a lot of attention. It's sort of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to organ failure or badness among critically ill patients. Now, we know it's common and associated with significant morbidity and mortality, not just acutely while patients are hospitalized, but because of crosstalk between organ systems even more chronically. So patients, if they survive to discharge, even within a couple of years of that, either go on to progress to chronic renal failure requiring hemodialysis or develop a number of cardiovascular complications. So I guess my question to you is, when it comes to acute kidney injury, why should we care so much? And How has the approach to defining AKI changed over the last five to 10 years? What should we have on our radar when we encounter a patient with AKI? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, Dr. Kim. Thanks a lot. So, uh, you know, the kind of the first, the first thing is the, the recognition. You know, it used to be, uh, we saw AKI, the creatinine would go up. They'd need dialysis or they wouldn't need dialysis and the creatinine would come down. And then you'd be like, Oh, phew, we got past that. And when we started looking at what happened to these patients six months, six years later, we saw that that event, that acute kidney injury marked that patient for all sorts of badness going forward. And 
there's still debate on whether it really is the acute kidney injury that causes those those downstream events or whether the acute kidney injury kind of reveals a patient with fragile kidneys who was destined to have those problems either way. And it's interesting, the basic science is really evolving to show that that acute kidney injury really does cause significant problems causing the chronic kidney disease in, in subsequent events. But if you kind of look at the data, it's really hard to tease out that causality versus just revealing a patient who would have had those problems anyways. And this is, you know, we see this in a lot of, a lot of issues when we have risk vectors, but whether it causes it or not is less important because once you see that patient with AKI, you need to know that that patient has high risk, right? Regardless of whether it was causal or not, that patient is now marked and someone you need to worry about. And, you know, and so we're having those patients come back as a follow-up. Not sure what we do with them when we have them come back, but it's kind of, this is the emerging kind of the standard of care. Hey, don't lose track of those patients. There are patients going to have kidney problems down the road. So it certainly helps to have a common language. And when it comes to criteria, Joel, for AKI, there really have been a number of different classification systems that have come out from Aiken to KDigo. So it was it was rifle for it was a rifle first. And that was the ADQI committee, and that was that was a huge moment because it was finally saying you know I think before you know if you read their their uh, position paper they identified there were thirty five individual definitions of acute kidney injury before ADQI came by. And they said, and, and, and literally you could, we couldn't move the field forward because n- nobody was talking about the same thing. And so ADQI created the rifle criteria. And for a first shot, it was really close, right? It's been evolved. Then there was the Aiken criteria, which was a mod, a mild modification. And then what we're using now is the KDigo criteria. And honestly, it's, it's moved about an inch from the original rifle criteria. We've not moved a lot. Um, but mainly we, uh, we stage it in three stages. It's based on serum creatinine and urine output. Though most of the validation studies are really based on serum creatinine. It's something that is easy to pull from an electronic medical record, as you can imagine. And I think, you know, everybody who's not, doesn't have a Foley, everybody always questions those urine outputs and whether those are accurate or not anyways. And so, you know, what you're looking at is a serum creatinine that goes up by either 0.3 or at least 50%. And that's going to give you a stage one, uh, acute kidney injury. And then if it, if it more than doubles within 48 hours, that's going to be, uh, stage two. And if it more than triples, that'll be stage three. Or, and then there's a, the other way to get to stage three is if you have an elevated serum creatinine, if you're running around with a creatinine, you know, that's, uh, you know, 3.5, it's unlikely that you would ever triple that before something else happened. And so we'll say if the creatinine goes over four and it's a change of at least 0.3, that will also be stage three. And it ends up working pretty well and it does, it does a good job. We see, you know, graded response that patients, you know, do better if they're stage one than stage two and better with stage two than stage three. It's uh, predicts uh, length of stay in the house, in the hospital, length of stay in the ICU and mortality, which is all what you would expect from a, from a validated uh, staging criteria. That said, anybody who's worth their salt in acute kidney injury will just tell you that creatinine is just not a great way of measuring kidney function, especially in these trauma, especially in trauma patients of all, you know, patients that are getting, you know, massive transfusion protocols, patients that are getting really uh, uh, intense uh, fluid resuscitation very early, you can get, and if they're, uh, 
if they have uh, anuria, especially, you'll see a lot of dilution. And so you can see patients making no urine at all and their creatinine is not rising at all. Again, they should qualify based on the, on the oliguria criteria, but creatinine has always been described as a lagging indicator. It takes a while for that to rise and it's a functional indicator. It requires a change in the filtration of the kidney. It's not like a troponin, which where you have direct damage to the heart and it immediately releases that uh, that molecule, so you can detect that damage instantly. And our attempts to find a renal troponin have been not great. You know, we've got a, we've got a couple of them. There's a, a product called Nephrocheck. Um, actually, I think it comes out of San Diego, and that purports to be uh it looks for kidney stress so these are kidneys that are at risk of developing aki uh stage two in the next eight hours is what they can predict and we have it at our hospital and some people have found uses for it in patients you know the patient's a little bit fragile you're wondering you know should i should i give them additional fluid can i start to diurese them why don't we take a look at the nephrocheck let's see what's kind of let's see where we're going to be in eight hours which is kind of an interesting you know it takes a lot of foresight to think that way yeah foresight and the luxury of time for sure i mean in the setting of an acute and active trauma resuscitation i'm kind of in the moment and thinking about what's going to happen to my patient over the course of the next minute or five minutes versus hours from now and As you alluded to earlier, Dr. Toff, there are a variety of risk factors that put our injured patients at risk for AKI, including host, as well as injury factors like hypovolemia and hypotension, which we see all too commonly. But in addition, there are a number of healthcare-provided or iatrogenic insults that occur that start in the field and continue through the ER, OR, and SICU from the administration of IV contrast, as well as the use of overly aggressive crystalloid resuscitation. In the last couple of years, it seems that a lot of the basic science work that had been published previously looking at the potentially deleterious effects of normal or abnormal saline with its attendant hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis on the development AKI is now being supported by well-designed clinical trials in both critically and non-critically ill patients who are subjected to NS versus balanced crystalloids, including lactated ringers and plasmolite. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the basic science is pretty solid here that the high chloride solutions do decrease GFR, do increase the risk of AKI. Uh, we've got basic science and we've got clinical science. Uh, the most compelling clinical science is going to be the SMART ED and the SALTED, tri- SALTED trial and the SMART Lee trial. These are both done at Vanderbilt. They're massive trials. I think each one was about thirteen or 15,000 patients here, talking nearly 30,000 patients that were randomized between these two protocols. The two protocols asking the same questions, randomizing patients to either a balanced solution, either plasma light or lactated ringers on one arm or normal saline on the other arm. And then they looked at uh, the outcomes were slightly different. In the ED trial, which had less sick patients, they were looking at- um, Yeah, that's the one with the hospital free days. Uh, days of hospital, days out of the hospital at, after 30, 30 days. No difference there, but a secondary outcome in there was something they called major adverse kidney events. It was this composite outcome of major adverse kidney events, which was death, right. dialysis, or an elevated creatinine, I think like a 50% increase in their creatinine at 30 days. The the SMARTLY, which was the ICU trial, sicker population, in that one, the primary outcome was the MAKE30, this major adverse kidney events at 30 days. 
also had about a 1% difference. And so what you're looking at is you're looking at a number needed to treat of 100. Right. Right. And, and that if you choose balanced solution over uh, normal saline, you're going to prevent one of these make 30 events. And you know, you talk to somebody who works in a busy ER, like how long does it take you to order 100 prescriptions of IV fluids? It's less than, you probably do that a couple times a week, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Or sometimes a couple times a day. And so so you're saying you, you by switching to balanced solutions, you can avoid two episodes of uh, prolonged kidney dysfunction a, a week. It sounds like you're doing a good job At, for an innocuous decision, right? Um, and so, and that's very consistent with the bench research. And it's, and we, we have a number of theories. It looks like chloride trips an internal sensor that detects whether the kidney is over filtering. And this is something that the kidney never wants to do. Over filtering is something that, you know, if you are filter, if your GFR is too high relative to the amount of reabsorption you have, patients can pee themselves to death. I mean, just think about a normal GFR is a hundred cc's a minute. You have three liters of plasma in a normal body. That's 30 minutes to get rid of all the plasma if you have filtration without reabsorption. That's a very frightening design point of the kidney, right? And the, and the way, the only way that it's acceptable is if the kidney has a number of fail safe mechanisms that says, anytime I get filtration without reabsorption, I'm going to shut down that glomerulus. And it's chloride that trips that. And if you get these, Completely non-physiologic chloride solutions. They're gonna, they seem to, I mean, again, you know, the science is a little soft here, but it seems to trip this. It's called tubular glomerular feedback, and that's going to shut down the glomeruli. And you, we believe that's the relationship between the high chloride solutions and the, um, and the acute kidney injury. You brought up the other point, which is something that's consistently found these, the normal saline does produce this non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. A number of bench studies have shown this to be harmful in immune reactions and white blood cell function. But, you know, these patients, these studies, they don't find increases death of sepsis. I'm not sure how, I, I personally, I'm not sure how important the non-anagat metabolic acidosis is, but it's certainly a side effect that you don't get with the, the balanced solutions. And then traditional knocks in the balanced solutions just don't hold up, right? The argument that it causes hyperkalemia not shown in any of these clinical studies. The argument that it causes lactic acidosis just is a, a profound misunderstanding of what lactic acidosis is, right? The lactate here is the alkali. It's not associated with hydrogen ions. It's not going to cause that at all. Though it will, though it will increase your lactate assessment on your lactate. If you're just measuring a lactate level, it will go up by a small amount, but it's not causing the lactic acidosis. So. Um, I'm a big proponent of balanced solutions. It does feel like though, I mean, let's, let's rewind and just recognize it's an NNT of a hundred. We're not saving the world with this intervention here. (laughs) No, very, very true. And then there is the cost consideration with a bag of saline costing maybe a dollar versus plasma light, which is about 10 times more expensive. Yeah. Do you guys use plasma light at your hospital? We do. Uh, we're not stocking it currently in the ER, but we use quite a bit of it in the OR. And, you know, again, I do think that LR really strikes the perfect balance between the other two solutions. I mean, we're, we're all elected ringers and that, that stuff is cheap. Agreed. So now getting back to the creatinine kidney boy, earlier we were talking about the fact that creatinine is not a great marker for renal function. And these days, when I open up the EHR, you get the EGFR, you get the creatinine clearance, and I know there's a lot of controversy around the EGFR with some actual healthcare systems getting rid of it altogether, but 
how do these fare in relation to just an absolute creatinine value? And the reason I bring this up is that when I think about our average sick acute care surgery or emergency general surgery patient, they're coming in malnourished with hepatic dysfunction, etc. And for me personally, I still, for any patient who's potentially unstable, want to get that fully in and look at their urine outputs. Well, I mean, you know, so the EGFR now is kind of in the crosshairs. Um, you know, nephrology really uh, started at the turn of the century is really, uh, really over indexed on the importance of EGFR. Um, and, and honestly, a couple of studies really validated it. It is a good predictor of, um, uh, future hospitalization and mortality. It does work out for those types of things, but that's across a population. And if you look at any one individual, uh, the accuracy of these EGFRs is embarrassingly poor. It's just not very good. It's going to be, you know, you're talking about plus or minus 20 points, which is just, you know, so you got an EGFR of 50. We're really talking about 30 to 70. Oh my gosh, what are you supposed to do with that? But I, I think in your business, I, I, that's not so important. What you need to be looking at is change in creatinine. You're all looking at you know, because the thing to remember is if they have a GFR of 15 or they have a GFR of 50, in both those situations, if that creatinine is stable, they're getting rid of their daily solute load, right? Like it's tough when they're 15, but they're still getting rid of all their daily solute load. It's the change in serum creatinine that indicates that's the problem. Right. And that's the one that's associated with all the badness that you guys are, are always looking at in terms of AKI. And so, you know, the change in creatinine that that is totally excused from all of our concerns about EGFR. There's a lot of heat right now about kind of whether we should be using race as part of our EGFR calculations. There's a lot of problems with that. But if you say, "Hey, you know what? I'm an acute care doctor, and I'm not worried so, and I'm not so worried about where their EGFR started. I just want to know is it changing? And that change in serum creatinine is, is quite good. And I and getting that fully in, I mean, that's a that's a great luxury that you have because being able to accurately watch that urine output, I mean, that that's the first indicator, right? That's going to be a good leading indicator that urine output falls. You're going to see a decrease in GFR almost certainly. So on the topic of Foley's and urine output, you know, we have this 0.5 cc per kg per hour rule. And if our post-op day one surgical patient who just underwent a major abdominal or thoracic surgery ain't making 0.5 cc's per kg per OR, well, darn it, they're going to get a bolus and then another bolus even if the creatinine's okay, they're mentating well, warm, well perfused. It's got to be 0.5 cc's per kg per hour. This thing kind of drives me nuts. What are your thoughts on this? I, I you know what, I'm, I, I am all right with that. I really am. I mean, I think I think that kind of getting in front of this thing and recognizing that that's going to be your leading indicator of acute kidney injury. And there's no doubt there that if you've got, if, let's put it this way, if you've got an intern that's giving a bolus rather than giving Lasix, they're probably avoiding some AKI. Right. And the concern is the concern is that the nurse calls and the complaint is a decreased urine output. And the intern, you know, it, it, the, the dreary eyed, sleepy intern at three in the morning goes, I have a drug that'll increase the urine output and without thinking gives the lace. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you know that that happens and that probably that's not helping the situation. I mean, sometimes, right. We all have seen there's a case, there's occasions when it works, but mostly if they're not peeing, it's because they have decreased volume, especially in, in patients that have, you know, uh, burns open wounds, uh, recent trips to the OR, you know, all reasons why they might be volume depleted. 
Uh, and especially right now with a lot of pushes to minimize the amount of fluid that we're given in those first 24, not, not so much in the first 24 hours, but after that, after that initial resuscitation, I think there's probably, you know, people that are watching those here now, but that's not, that's not, I don't, I'm not sure if that's a bad thing. I, I'm, 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 I'm not going to pound on that one. I kind of, I kind of like that. I think that there is some AKI that we see that could be avoided if we gave a little bit of extra fluid. Hmm, okay. I'm not sure how much, but I think there's some. Well, I thought we were friends, but now I see we're not. <laughs> but uh, all kidding aside, Joel, I do feel like perhaps the pendulum is swinging back to the middle. Um, but, you know, it's not uncommon to see patients who are post-op day one that are 10 to 12 liters positive, And it just makes me cringe. And I just want to stop the madness, you know, with the dry land saltwater drowning. But with that said, a lot of our trauma patients are young, healthy kids who can probably tolerate it, and they do make urine and get rid of that excessive uh, fluids. But I do wonder about the physiology of stress or the response to stress and surgery. I mean, in addition to activation of the sympathetic nervous system, release of cortisol and epinephrine, in the first 24 to 72 hours, we have increased circulating levels of ADH. We get activation of the RAS system. And based on the textbooks, we do get the holding onto of water. And perhaps this whole concept that we need to make a bunch of urine, at least in this early post-injury yeah. or post-operative state uh, could be considered normal. And I do want to say um, in previous podcasts or on your blogs, I've heard you refer to ADH as the ad hydration hormone, it's a bad name. which right. I yeah. absolutely love because when I think of ADH, it's sometimes hard to wrap my, ma- my mind around it. And so it's almost like this double negative, but thinking about ADH as something that's going to add hydration or water back to the body, I think is a great way to think about it. And so I guess the question I have for you, Dr. Toff, is that in a patient who's just had a major trauma or let's say the post-operative patient who's just undergone major surgery, I mean, provided that they're perfusing, mentating, good cap refill, and their vitals are looking good, do we really need to get worked up about the decreased urine output, understanding that this may be a normal physiologic response as a result of increased circulating levels of ADH? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a that's a compelling argument. You know, the there was a there was a study. It was not this past summer, but the summer before that, called the Relief Study. It's restrictive versus liberal fluid therapy for major abdominal surgery. Are you familiar with it? Are you familiar with this study? Yeah, I am. I was wondering if you're going to bring up this study. You know, it's one of those that don't support my biases, so I very rarely quote it. So, three thousand patients undergoing major abdominal surgery, increased risk with increased risk of complications. I'm not sure how they enroll those patients. Liberal arm was 10 mils per kilogram before surgery, 8 mils per kilogram per hour during surgery, and 1.5 mil per kilogram after surgery. Restrictive looks like it was about half of those volumes and no difference in outcome, but I think they did have increased AKI, higher rate of acute kidney injury with the restrictive, with the restrictive group. And, and I remember that it was, it, it, it was unique that it kind of had gone against the larger, the previous uh, body of work on this, on this topic, which had all shown restrictive was better, restrictive was better. And I know that some people argued that even their liberal arm wasn't as liberal as people had been doing beforehand. Right, right. Yeah. I remember the 24 hour cumulative balances weren't 
all that difference between the restrictive and the liberal. That, it, that, that part of this study was uh, the result, the kind of the pendulum that you're saying that we'd all kind of accepted a much lower volume of, of, of fluid. And that, uh, and this has shown kind of, well, you've gone as far as you can go. So Joel, in terms of post-operative ADH elevations, is this something that you're seeing a lot of? We see a lot of post-operative high ADH. That's exactly right. And, and it causes a lot of, um, a post-operative hyponatremia, which is something that we're, we see, we see all, we see all the time. And so is some of this, is some of the decreased urine output that we have post-operatively physiologic? I'm sure, I'm sure some of it is, but as you said, you know, a lot of our patients are, Young probably can tolerate the extra fluid. We do see, you know, you do see some increased complications, post-operative complications with if fluid is, if you give too much fluid. I'm not convinced that, that ignoring urine output, if, if we're ready for that. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, since we're talking about hyponatremia and ADH, I was wondering, Dr. Toff, if we could maybe go over a recent case of hyponatremia in a patient with a traumatic brain injury or TBI. And I think the big concern here was an overly rapid push, uh, more so than a rapid correction, and the concern for potential osmotic demyelination syndrome. Yeah. Hyponatremia. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. So we've got a young female, a fifty-year-old woman. Notice how I say. Yeah, young. that number gets that that number gets older and older every year. The, the definition of young gets more and more <laughs> liberal. <laughs> so yeah, so this woman, she's an auto versus pedestrian. She comes in and she's got a low GCS or Glasgow Coma Scale. Her blood pressure is two twenty over ninety, and and there's a concern. Uh, for a potential Cushing's reflex, but she's not bradycardic. She gets taken emergently to the OR for a decompressive craniectomy. And as you can imagine, in the trauma bay, we don't usually have a lot of time to draw an entire rainbow blood panel. And it's noted here that her admission sodium is 134, which is, albeit not particularly alarming, uh, given her presentation, there was a concern for elevated intracranial pressure, and our protocol here is to give hypertonic saline in the ER, and they typically get about 250 cc's of that, and then off to the OR she went. And in the OR, she also got a couple hundred grams of mannitol, uh, two bags of uh, 20% mannitol, and then she's admitted to the SICU, has an uncomplicated course early on, and she gets the cookbook push the sodium to 145 to 155 and she's also got some basal normal saline going as a maintenance infusion now in terms of the sodium of 134 is that something to get concerned about and how do we approach that initial hyponatremia yeah i mean a sodium of 134 i wouldn't i wouldn't blink at i wouldn't worry about that being hyponatremia at all and um in terms of the concern about the rapid rise, because you're essentially talking about in 24 hours, you're going to go from 134 to 155, a change of 19, right. uh, 21, which is you know, a, a, a faster than any speed limit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no, no one, no one advises going that fast, uh, regardless of it, whether it's acute or chronic. That said, if you kind of look at all the case reports of patients with central ponte monolysis or osmotic uh, demyelination syndrome, all of them have a sodium less than 120, and most of them have a sodium less than 115 to begin with. I, I, I think that this would be a pretty unusual and pretty rare case to cause uh, osmotic uh, demyelination syndrome. I wouldn't worry too much about that. 
you know, that said, it like it, do, it does break the speed limit, and almost certainly that sodium one thirty four was a chronic sodium, not an acute drop right, because it's right, right there, right in the normal range. And but it it would be pretty remarkable story to get osmotic demyelination syndrome. On the other side of that coin, do we have strong a strong evidence base that that sodium one fifty five is going to improve outcomes? Like when you told me about this case, I kind of looked at it pretty quickly. I couldn't find the data there that showed improved neurologic outcomes with running that hyper, that hypernatremic. I mean, you know, we get these uh, studies that show that it decreases intracranial pressure, which is probably an important outcome. But, you know, do, do you, can you close the loop? You know, if we're going to, if we're going to fight fire on one side saying, well, we don't really have a good uh, evidence base that this is going to cause osmotic demyelination syndrome. You know, the other side as well, you know, does raising that sodium really improve? Uh, patient outcomes. I'm I'm not aware of that literature. No, and Um, in fact, there really is no good literature to support that. It's really one of these general guidelines or myths, if you will, that have been adopted and I think apply fairly liberally to patients with severe TBI. And in general, when patients come in with an STBI and we're concerned with elevated intracranial pressures following institution of the usual first-tier therapies like head up, loosen the cervical collar, sedation analgesia, we'd consider second-line therapies with either mannitol or hypertonic saline. Of course, the one issue with mannitol is because it's an osmotic diuretic, patients, they can become hypotensive if they're already borderline in terms of their volume status. But in the absence of increased ICPs, I just don't see the benefit of running them hypernatremic or salty versus targeting normal natremia. And, av- and avoid your hypotonic fluids that are going to increase your intracranial pressure, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah but like, like I said, if you look at the case reports on osmotic uh, demyelination syndrome, uh, it's almost all very low sodiums. And also, this is an incredibly rare complication. Absolutely. I think this is one of those clinical syndromes or diagnoses that we also often talk about, but very rarely see. I have spent a lot of my career avoiding div- seeing one, and I've never seen one, but I mean, and I've seen a lot of mismanaged sodiums, right? Like, I, <laughs> I feel like I should have seen a bunch by now, <laughs> right. but the number of times that I've seen, you know, the sodium shoot up and, you know, poorly controlled, I get called in late. Um, and let's, you know, let's cause a, a spade a spade. I've mismanaged some sodiums myself. Sure. Like, it's not, they don't always respond like you expect them to respond. Absolutely. It can be difficult, but thank God I've never had a patient uh, develop this complication. I think the key teaching point I wanted to make with this particular case, Dr. Toff, especially for our house staff and students, was to pay attention to those admission labs and particularly look for the presence of a dysnatremia. And if you're going to correct it, make sure you're not overly rapid in doing so. In general, if this was an acute process based on the history and talking with the patient, what is the quickest rate at which you'd want to restore sodium to normal? Right. So, you know, you know again, this is an unusual case because really what you're saying, you're trying to extrapolate these the, the complications that happen from going from a very low sodium to a normal sodium. And what you have here is a essentially a normal sodium to a hypernatremic sodium. And I can we can presume that the physiology is the same, but I'm having a hard time pulling up real case stories about this happening. Um, though I do know there was a case report, this was in Europe, where the patient started out with a modestly low sodium and then got driven to hypernatremia and developed osmotic demyelination syndrome, but they were lower than 134 to begin with. 
uh, one of the interesting things is if you take a look at uh, something like one, one of the things we've noted, you know, we talk about hyponatremia being largely, if it's chronic, being largely asymptomatic, that you can have, you know, some remarkable stories. Oh, the patient walked in with the sodium of 107, had no complaints whatsoever. We couldn't believe the sodium was so low. You know, those stories happen all the time. But the truth is that if you really do careful uh, neuropsych testing, they're not asymptomatic, right? That low sodium absolutely affects. They have very slow reaction times. They have unsteady gait. Like there's these gait analysis where they watch the center of gravity and it's just, it's all over the place when these patients have these low sodium. They, can, they really can barely keep themselves upright. And that increased fall risk begins right at 130, right, right below the, right after they go below 135, right. you know, 134, which, you know, like I said, I don't really consider much of a hyponatremia at all. They will have an elevated fall risk and it gets a lot worse as it goes down from there, but it is elevated right at the beginning. It's not entirely innocuous. Yeah. And that patient population that you're describing sounds to me like what we would see on our typical orthopedics or medicine services. It's un- Namely, yeah. Elderly, mild hyponatremia that get admitted following a hip fracture yeah. on multiple meds and antithrombotics. They're at home with or without help, and they're falling on their hips and potentially dying. Yeah, well, yeah, we know that in the elderly, uh, hip fracture can be a mortal, a mortal event. You know, and and to also make it worse, not only do they have an increased fall risk, there's an association with hyponatremia and osteopenia and osteoporosis. And there's some thoughts that with this low sodium, they actually will demineralize their bones. That there's a signal there that they'll demineralize their bones in response to that hyponatremia. And you know, it's hard to imagine a worse combination. It increases your oh, fall risk yeah. and weakens your bones. Right? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, and so, yeah, we, the number of consults we get from the orthopedic floor with broken hip and hyponatremia, it's, it really is just a, it's a, it's a, a amazing how often that happens. For sure, for sure. And, you know, just to close the loop, Dr. Toff, for this particular case, the the reason the CPM diagnosis came about was that she actually never had a good or reliable neurologic exam on admission. And post-craniectomy, her neurological exam continued to remain depressed. And so our neurosurgeons went down the MRI pathway to further delineate the anatomy of the injury. Yeah. Of course, we get the MRI and our radiologists bring up concerns regarding the appearance of the pons. Really? And now we're completely beside ourselves thinking, oh my gosh, a 21-point correction. Yeah. You know, we've never seen this before in terms of this sort of a complication from rapid uh, increases in sodium, but we kind of went a little gangbusters in the ICU, again, weighing the risks and benefits of the elevated ICP. When we look back at the original imaging, however, what we found was that on admission, she had what are known as Duray's hemorrhages or a shearing injury to the brainstem. And that probably explains some of her initial presentation in terms of findings. So when we correlated the Duray's hemorrhages with the findings on the MRI, the radiologists were quite definitive in the diagnosis not CPM. Well, I'm sure glad I went to the wall and said, this is no way it was going to be CPM. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, kidney boy. This was Uh, not CPM. No, because, right, because the physiology is the same. Right. Or we presume it's the same. It's just, we just don't have a lot of case reports and cases like what you described. That's pretty interesting. (laughs) 
Well, all right, moving on to our next case. This time around, we've got a 69-year-old female with a self-inflicted stab wound to the abdomen, and she reports being unable to sleep for days and wanted to kill herself. She's got a, a documented history of schizophrenia, on multiple antipsychotic agents. And besides the information that I just gave you, I mean, she's hemodynamically stable, neurologically intact, and interestingly is complaining in addition to the sleeplessness of nausea and headaches. And, uh, you know, she ends up stabbing herself in the abdomen and comes in eviscerated. So she obviously ends up in the operating room. It ends up being a two-hour case, gets a couple liters of plasma light, And interestingly, in the ER, her sodium was 109. And as a surgical intensivist, this is certainly one of the lower sodiums I've encountered. I'm sure you've seen much lower, and the medicine folks encounter this all the time. They don't go much lower. They go lower, but not much lower. 109 is knocking on the door of, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we were certainly very impressed. And, you know, we took out our MD calc, and we're thinking about the algorithm and the approach to hyponatremia even opened up up to date to look at their algorithm. And I got to say, you know, it, they just make it so complicated. I mean, you look at the the treatment and the workup and like you've got to use the side scroll button, the up and down. It's like this endless scroll to try to get through this. So Dr. Toff, you see a patient like this, you know, they're minimally symptomatic What's your approach to patients with this degree or severity of hyponatremia? Yeah. So, you know, so this is a, you know, so, okay. So the first thing you address absolutely is, is this patient seizing, right? Is this patient having, is suffering from the increased intracranial pressure that you get from chronic or from acute hyponatremia? And the answer is a absolutely not. Okay. And so that, and that is a a very important first step because then you can, you're fine. The patient is largely asymptomatic. So let's not make them symptomatic, right? The patient's <laughs> right. doing all right. All right. We got to fix this sodium for sure, but the urgency of the situation goes down. And even though that sodium is incredibly low, the worst thing you can do is go fast here. Right. Okay. And then the next thing you want to do is you want to say, well, is this going to change going forward pretty quickly? Right. And so a lot of this is going to try to figure out what's driving this. What's the diagnosis? And I'll, and just from what we have, you know, you have a a patient who's a psych patient, history of schizophrenia. I think it was schizophrenia. Is that right? Correct. Schizophrenia. Patients with schizophrenia. So they're on a number of meds that cause SIADH. They're on a number of meds that are anticholinergic, which give you dry mouth that make you drink a lot of water. And they're prone to psychogenic polydipsia. There's something about schizophrenia that drives that. And so, you know, and and those are a completely opposite diagnosis, psychogenic polydipsia and SIADH. One, you drink too much water. The other one, you don't get rid of any water. But they both cause hyponatremia and they both uh, can occur in this population. And so, you know, the easiest way to, to differentiate those is, well, let's just take a look at the ADH level, right? It's going to be high in SIADH and it'll be absent in uh, psychogenic polydipsia or someone who's just has compulsive water drinking. And the way we measure that is you just look at the urine specific gravity or urine osmolality. So did you get a UA? 
Yeah, interestingly, in the SICU, we don't order a lot of UAs. With this sodium, I think my initial reaction would have been to look at her spec grab yeah, and order right. a urine osm, uh, but she didn't have one performed at the time of admission. Eventually, she did get a serum osm, which came mm-hmm. back at 230, and her urine osm was 447. So just a true hyponatremia. Yep. Very consistent with that very low sodium. Yep. Okay. So if it was someone who had compulsive water drinking and healthy and normal kidneys, at that serum of 238, they would have a urinosum of 50 or 60. It'd be as low as possible. So 447, even if they've gotten some fluids, does not matter. It absolutely gets you out of that box. And so you're almost certainly looking at um, uh, SIADH. You know, you can do, you, you, you know, you haven't mentioned anything about the volume status. I'm presuming that it was relatively normal except for the blood loss Right. Um, yeah, but- I gave up looking for CVP and JVD a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you've got those, you've got those liver patients that got the ascites. You, come on, you, you know yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those- Bulging flanks, I can appreciate that. But in this case, yeah, normal volumen. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's not that she doesn't have fluid. She's not fluid overloaded, and so it's you know it sounded like SIDH. You know, you, you can lock it in. You can take a look at the urine electrolytes, and if it's hypervolemic like a heart failure or a liver failure or nephrotic syndrome or hypovolemic, bad diarrhea, bad blood loss, presumably. In either of those situations, urine sodium will be less than 20. Right, right. And if it's greater than 40, that's consistent with an SIADH, which is where you're leaning towards anyway. For sure. Now, do we have a urine sodium? Yeah, her urine sodium was 52. 52. Okay. So this is, you know, your diagnosis has fallen into place and looking like SIADH. This could be something that's drug induced. So, you know, I would look at, I would look at her if she's on antipsychotics. Multiple. Might want to, you need to talk to psych because sometimes stopping those medicines causes more problems than they, than it solves. Oh, big time, big time. And that's something that I've always impressed upon our house staff is not to abruptly discontinue psych meds with very few exceptions. I mean, a patient comes in with serotonin syndrome or NMS, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Sure. But again, early consultation with psych. Uh, because again, I think if we stop these medications abruptly, uh, patients can run into issues with SI, HI, psychosis, and, you know, it's really difficult to, to manage these patients, especially when they get so uncooperative. Things rarely get better with an un, uh, uncooperative patient. So certainly point to those meds as being is driving that. They're probably going to have SIAH tomorrow, right? It's not something that's going to turn off. You know, the real, the real tricky things with these patients are the patients that have been drinking tons of water and then they have, they lose access to water because they're intubated or tied to a bed or what have you. And, you know, all of a sudden their sodium is going to shoot up, right? Because they're dependent on drinking six, seven, 12 liters, 18 liters a day of water to keep that sodium down really low. And if they don't have access to that, they're going to correct very, very quickly, probably too quickly. And then you're back in osmotic demyelination syndrome. Uh, similarly, patients with thiazide induced diuretic, as soon as you stop that thiazide, they're going to clear that volume depletion. Their sodium is going to shoot up. Same thing with uh, volume depleted patients. As soon as you give, you restore that volume, you give them the couple of liters in the OR or what have you. You remove that stimulus to release ADH from the volume lo- from the volume deficiency. They suppress the ADH, and all of a sudden they start putting out 500, 700, a liter of urine an hour, and their sodium shoots up. 
that's probably not going to happen in this situation. And that makes it easier to manage. The way to prevent that from ever happening is a, is a technique called a, a DDAVP clamp. Oh, great topic. And the, you know, so the, the danger when you have asymptomatic hyponatremia, if, you know, that's usually ADH driven. And if their ADH goes away, that patient that's making 20 cc's of urine an hour starts making 500 cc's of urine an hour. It's very dilute urine and their sodium is going to shoot up. And that, you know, then there, it's almost impossible to control their sodium. It just goes up too fast. Um, and so, one way to prevent that is we're going to, we just give pharmaceutical ADH, which is called DDAVP. We're going to put them on, you know, a dose, uh, Q12 or Q4 hours, excuse me, Q12 or Q8 hours, either two or three times a day. And I always have to look it up. And I- Well, it just so happens that I actually have one of your tutorials up. And on this post, it says here that you give uh, four micrograms. You give, a, essentially, you give them plenty of ADH so they're not going to get this profuse dilute urine. And then you've essentially given them a wicked case of uh, SIADH by giving that drug. And the only, and then to treat that, you really need to put them on a 3% saline drip. Right. So those happen concurrently. That's right. Don't try to do one without the other, really. it's uh, And if you've ever tried to treat hyponatremia with a 3% drip without a clamp, it, it is very difficult to do. And the sodium rarely behaves the way it's supposed to according to the equations. Sure. And the most remarkable thing is when you give them the clamp, when you clamp them, all of a sudden those equations that you were like, these things never work. All of a sudden they start working perfectly. <laughs> it really is pretty amazing. Right, right. The big variable there is it's just, it's so hard to predict urine output otherwise. Of course. And once you clamp them, it just becomes so much simpler because essentially the urine drops off so much, just like you were talking about your post-surgical patients with the physiologic increases of ADH. That's what happens here. The urine output drops off essentially, not quite to zero, but close enough to zero and everything becomes much easier to calculate. And you, you do this for a day or two, you know, because for this patient, you're going to want to raise them, you know, what are we, we started at 109 on the day one. Correct. And the other thing I would think about, that's 109 on admission. She got a couple of liters of plasmolite in the OR. That very well could lower her sodium. Yeah, I think that's such a key point that you're making, Dr. Toff, namely that we see hyponatremia and the knee-jerk reaction is to infuse normal saline because, you know, there's 154 milliequivs per liter in there, and that's certain to raise the serum sodium. But there seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of the body's ability to concentrate urine and they're going to end up holding on to more water than they're putting out and they eventually become even more hyponatremic. I mean, you can take a look at the numbers here. Her urine osmolality is 447. Uh, Plasmolite's osmolality is like, uh, it's like 250, I think. Give or take, yeah. And so- She's going to get rid of all the solute in that urine at 447, and you gave it to her at 250. That's a lot of excess water that she's going to retain. About a third of that liter, she's just going to retain that water and further dilute her sodium. And so, you know, it's it's hard to fault people if people didn't see that sodium before they go in. When you start to set your your clamp up, re, reset those labs, reorder that lab, see where you're starting from. You know, the the target that we use in this situation, we want to we want to go no more than six milliequivalents in the first day. So that's what you want to target. And that gives you a little bit of slop. You probably can go up to eight milliequivalents 
per liter change in the first day. But if you aim for six, you're less likely to overshoot. Makes sense. So you go for six in the first day and, you know, six to eight every day after that. And you just take your time and it goes up and uh, everybody does fine. All right. So let's suppose our patient came in and she was seizing. Yes. And we get back that admission sodium, 109. In this case, we want to be super aggressive. So we'd probably start with hypertonic saline at about yeah. what, 150, 250 cc? I, I, I like to give a 250 cc bolus. Just give okay. 150, 250 cc's of saline, depending on size. You know, smaller person, you probably can do a little bit less, 150. Larger person, a little bit more, 250. And then, uh, and re, and you're looking for a five mil equivalent per liter change in serum sodium. That's usually enough to stop the seizing. And so it's, uh, it's, and it's really five mil equivalents per liter change as quickly as possible. So you give the bolus, recheck the sodium, repeat the bolus until you're either the seizing stops right. or the uh, sodium goes up. To buy five millivolts per liter. Sure. And once that sodium has gone up by five, if they're still seizing, it probably not the hyponatremia that's causing the seizure. Great point. And you want to and you want to think about what the other alternatives could be. You know, it's a patient might just have a seizure disorder. You know. Yeah, and you've got a great tutorial on this, and so we'll make sure that we put a link to that. Yeah. In the show notes. But getting back to the DDAVP clamp, so it sounds like this is something that's going to require very intense, frequent reassessment and evaluation, probably in an ICU environment. So your patient comes in, you're looking at their hourly urine outputs when you start to notice that they're really dumping urine. Is that when they become a candidate for the clamp? The idea is not to let them ever pour out. If you're doing the clamp, then you you do it prospectively. You're like, I'm never going to let this urine output go up. The other strategy is a rescue therapy. And that's where you watch the urine output, you watch the sodium. And if the sodium ever starts to really take off, okay, then you start the DDAVP. You know, none of these have been tested in head-to-head randomized controlled trials. You know, all we have is case series. And the problem is, is that the complication that you're worried about is so rare, you know, even if one's not very good, you might not be able to catch what, you might not be able to show that it's not very good. And that's, and that's just, and, 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 you know, I honestly, I don't know how you study that in a, in a kind of a controlled environment. Like when the complication is that rare, it's just difficult. You end up leaning on kind of second order, uh, evidence. You know, we got these case series. This is what it looks like. This is what makes sense. <laughs> well, you just described the entire trauma literature, which is pretty much what we base most of our decisions on. When you clamp someone, you're kind of, you're kind of buckling up for a long therapy. It's going to take a while to get there. Right. And, uh, it's going to be a lot of ice. Usually these patients have to be in the ICU time and you can see the, I, I also, and oftentimes when I start this, I see the intensivist tapping their shoe going, I can't believe you're doing this to me, Toph. Because you know, the patient's asymptomatic, right? The patient's sitting there watching TV, ordering from the from the, from the the cafeteria saying, you know, you're like, the patient needs to be in the ICU. I'm like, well, I'm using 3% and your rules say I have to be in the ICU. You know, it's like, it ends up being a little bit of a, a tough sell sometimes. Yeah, no. And we have the exact same rule. But, you know, Joel, I, I think I've heard enough. You know, the next time I have a patient with severe hyponatremia, they're getting the clamp. Yeah, you, you'd want you'd want nephrology support on this. It's just you know you know honestly this is this is if if you haven't if you haven't treated a lot of hyponatremia, I wouldn't right. recommend jumping in with a, a DDAVP clamp as your first as your first therapeutic. You no, know. agreed, agreed. And we do love our nephrology support. But, yeah, but what I would say is the ones that you're going to do it in 
are these patients, the patients with a sodium of 109 that's incredibly low. You know, it's, you know, it's not the, it's not the sodium of 127 or even 122. Yeah, those are low and you're going to want to take care of them, but it's, it's these patients in particular below 115 where the risk of central, where most of the cases of central osmotic demyelination syndrome come from. Awesome. So Dr. Toff, do you have time for one more case? Let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome. So this time around, we've got a case that we see not too infrequently in our SICU. This is a 31-year-old male found down with a concern for blunt head trauma. He was actually found by a family member prone in the bathroom with a needle sticking out of his arm. Gets some Narcan, gets brought to the ER, and the patient tells us that he was on a cocaine binge and needed to come down, so he ended up injecting heroin. On exam, vital signs are stable, and he's noted to have quote-unquote burns to the left side of the body, specifically to the left upper and left lower extremity, and his compartments in these extremities are tense. Initial labs come back. He's got a CK of greater than 100,000. His potassium is 7.8, BUN 22, and creatinine is 3.14. Gets a venous blood gas drawn in the trauma bay, and it comes back at 6.9, 60, 43, minus 20, and 12. So I think the dilemma here that came up at that time was really, do we dialyze the patient now Or do we get up to the operating room where we can get source control, specifically with regards to the dead muscle, which is largely responsible for a lot of his metabolic abnormalities? So really, Dr. Toff, wanted to get your thoughts on this particular case. And how should we be approaching these patients acutely in the trauma bay when they arrive with rhabdomyolysis and these severe metabolic derangements? Yeah, I, I would be real nervous about taking a guy with a potassium of seven point eight anywhere for any type of mater- any type of uh, intervention that wasn't focused on getting that potassium down. And you know, you've got a you got a patient with a combined uh, metabolic and respiratory acidosis, and that pH of six point nine is not is not helping you, but you know, the reason your potassium is 7.8 is not because of your acidosis. That is contributing, but that rhabdo is releasing tons of muscle potassiums. And as you improve circulation to that dead tissue, it might get worse. You might wash even more potassium out. This could, this could get bad in a hurry. And, and I, I think this is the kind of patient that if you put a Foley in and you, and it's dry, I might go right to dialysis right away. I mean, if this patient's aneuric and they, and they oftentimes are with that, you know, with a CK of a hundred thousand, this, you don't, you don't have them. I don't think you have a moment to spare here. Yeah. No, completely agree. And we did get the Foley in and it was literally dust in the wind. And so acutely we intervened in the usual ways. We stabilized the cardiac membrane with calcium. Yeah. Started with aggressive fluid and IV hydration together with a bicarb drip. Of course, we consulted nephrology and immediately got access for dialysis. And I think you bring up some great points regarding ischemic reperfusion injury. We, we start to release these compartments and let them breathe, and the washout can be super impressive. And we've seen patients go into frank cardiac arrest or VF arrest on the OR table when we are overly aggressive about getting these patients up to the OR 
versus taking just a little bit of time to do a quick dialysis run. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of the type of dialysis that you're looking at, you know, you we're used to in these critically ill patients to, to lean on CRT, continuous renal replacement therapy. But when you have hyperkalemia, conventional hemodialysis is way more efficient. It just processes so much more blood per minute that that's where the, that's where your money is for this. And, you know, you've got, you know, this is a patient and we just, you know, it's not typical that we see patients with so much problems with solute control. That's what you got here. This is a solute problem. And you do a, a one, two and a half hour or three hour uh, conventional dialysis session and you're going to get that potassium down to four. You're going to get that pH up pretty significantly because, you know, we always think of removing things during dialysis. But one of the things that dialysis does, we're going to dialyze a ton of bicarb into this guy. It's a real efficient way to add bicarb to the body. Uh, we'll be removing some hydrogen ions, of course, but uh, I don't think anybody would fault you with going to the, going to the dialysis early with this. And so I, that I'd like to see that before I, uh, and I'm sure anesthesia would like to see that before they were asked to, to, to treat this guy. I think everybody would be nervous about that. And then what you say about the, about the calcium, absolutely. You're going to want to, if you've got central access, you'll want to give this guy calcium chloride, you know, cause, and, and that's actually part of, uh, the rhabdo, uh, syndrome is that they get hypocalcemia and it's usually pretty severe, um, in addition to the uh, very high phosphorus and high potassium and all that. And so uh, we'll, you'd want to dialyze this guy in a high calcium bath, which is usually an option for most, most dialysis units will have a high calcium bath. And then after you've d- removed the, the acute potassium, you may want to follow that, that up with continuous dialysis, depending on kind of what his stat, the status is with, um, his potassium and his renal function after that. But a mixed modality approach might be the right way to go. Conventional dialysis off the bat, and then to prevent any kind of rebound, we're going to put them on uh, continuous dialysis. And Joel, in terms of the modalities, a combined modality, I, I think you're saying something like CVV HDF. The thing about rhabdo and myoglobin release, I'm not sure how many of our listeners know this, but via convection, we can actually lower myoglobin levels in the blood. You know, I, I have not seen compelling data that we can shorten the duration of renal fa- kidney failure or any of the other kind of complications from that. You know, the answer, the question is, if you find myoglobin in the dialysate and you've removed some of this stuff, does it improve patient outcomes? And if, if that data is out there and it may be, I've not seen it. It's not a generally you know, I, and I will say absolutely. There were people that theorized that this was an important component. That dialyzing early in this disease would really make a difference. I'm pretty sure that that data has not panned out. Um, that we've not seen, you know, shorter duration of dialysis or shorter duration of any other kind of uh, complications, hospitalization, whatever. However, you want to mark it. Um, if you know, again, if that data is out there, I'm not aware of it. Nor am I. No, I completely agree with you. I'm not aware that it actually improves outcomes. Um, I was under the impression, though, that because myoglobin's a middleweight molecule, that it could be removed via convection. I guess the question then becomes, once AKI has already been established as a result of rhabdomyolysis and tubular damage, does removing it actually improve outcomes? Oh yeah, it's only sixteen. It's only sixteen thousand kilodaltons. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's uh, that's something that. Um you know, you'd have to have a pretty leaky membrane. Usually, the, the cutoff is usually closer to five thousand, so it's a little, it's a little big. But that, I, I, I didn't realize it was that small. 
And, you know, Joel, one of the things that we've worked out with our nephrology colleagues is that if patients require repeat trips back and forth to and from the OR, we can actually continue the green machine in the OR so we avoid these situations where patients are on, then off, and on again. Yeah, this is, this is, a, this is a rough situation for this patient. And so I guess the question, was the patient anuric? Yeah, pretty much. The patient had a, a few cc's in his Foley bag uh-huh. and was dark, dark Coca-Cola colored urine. I always kind of wonder how much, how long to run the aggressive fluids when you already have kind of the ultimate end organ damage, right? Like, what are we treating with these high fluids? I, I, you know, you, you, you're going to give them, you, certainly you're going to resuscitate them. And then once their volume resuscitated, you know, and, and again, the physical exam is difficult in these patients with rhabdo because they do get a lot of edema in the injured muscle. And so you, you, you put your fingers on the leg, you're like, oh, they got a lot of peripheral edema. I'm not sure if what if you're actually measuring what you think you're measuring there. Um, and so they probably need additional fluids. But again, you know, you know, what's the kind of the goal there? You know, it, to me, if they're making urine, clearly the goal is I want them to keep peeing, right? I don't want them to go into re- kidney failure. But once they've got annular kidney failure and you've done your initial fluid resuscitation, I'm not I, I'm not sure what the advantage what what you're treating there, what your what kind of get what your gains are. Even though the protocols all say you know 200 cc's an hour of uh, you know you know either a balanced solution or even bicarb uh, isotonic bicarb uh, fluids, but a lot of those are to to try to minimize nephrotoxicity and like that horse has left the barn, right? (laughs) You've missed that opportunity to prevent that outcome. No, absolutely. And this is certainly one of those situations where I want to see the upper limit of normal two cc's per kg per hour and being super aggressive about it. You know, in the past, you mentioned bicarb. We used to alkalinize the urine, and if they were frankly anuric, maybe even give some mannitol for patients who were oliguric to kind of kickstart things. But, or maybe there was some anti-inflammatory property to mannitol that helped with what was going on within the kidney tubules. Anything new in regards to these types of therapies? No, those are those are those are old therapy. There was actually in I think it was in Arizona or Phoenix, someplace in the desert Southwest, they did a pretty nice randomized controlled trial looking at bicarb and mannitol in rhabdo. The, the big man trial, I think is what they called it for bicarb and mannitol. And, uh, you know, its primary outcome was negative, but if you kind of look, you kind of look at the, at the data and you kind of look where they were going, it largely was underpowered for patients with severe rhabdo. And as you kind of looked at the trends, the worse the rhabdo, the more likely this was working. You kind of, it kind of felt to me that it was underpowered. And if you kind of had, it may have worked if you had gotten the right population enrolled in the trial. But I think the conventional wisdom is these things don't work. The alkalinizing the urine is quite interesting because, you know, we know that it's the crystallization of the myoglobin that's so toxic. And that is definitely pH dependent. And like, you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure if I need a randomized controlled trial if it's just chemistry, right? Like the chemistry <laughs> is the chemistry. And, and so I, I do in rhabdo try to push bicarb and try to rate and try to get that urine pH up. It's a little difficult to do, but. In patients that are anuric, I'm reluctant to do it. And I'm even more reluctant to give bicarb in the anuric patient because my concern is, well, if they're not clearing it from the kidney, what, what's happening to that mannitol? Where is it going? Right. It, that's not supposed to be in the subcutaneous tissues or the interstitium. So it does that 
makes me a little concerned. And so um, I will use uh, uh, some mannitol if they're still urinating. And I do believe that it is a contraindication on mannitol in patients that are anuric. I think that's right on the, the package insert. So that's kind of where, in terms of the witchcraft of rhabdomyolysis, this is where I fall down. I'm a, I, I'm all right with uh, alkalinizing the urine. I'm less okay with the, with the mannitol. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for going over those cases for us. Before we end, any last words or words of wisdom for our listeners? The thing that uh, nephrologists love the most is getting called early on acute kidney injury, right? Like if you just see that creatinine starting to go up, but you're like, well, they don't need dialysis yet. We love getting that call. And I know the the surgeons of our, our institutions do a great job of that. And we get called on a lot of these early cases and, uh, and it's a pleasure to kind of get that opportunity to maybe give you some suggestions that could avoid the AKI, right? Or, uh, help with diuretic management or help with IV fluids. Uh, that, that's something, you know, some of our, some of the, the best collaborations are before they develop AKI. So that, that's the one thing I'd love to see more of. Yeah. I agree with you completely. I think that's a fantastic point. Collaboration is the new competition. And when it comes to patients with kidney injury or at risk for kidney injury, I think getting you guys involved early can make a world of a difference. So thank you so much for for that. And again, thank you so much, Kidney Boy, Dr. Toff, for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm sure our listeners are going to take a lot away from this episode and looking forward to having you back on the show. Yeah, no, this was, uh, thank you. This was great, uh, great work that you guys are doing here. Good, really good cases, by the way, really good cases. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Trauma ICU Rounds. I want to thank you for joining us. If you like what you're listening to, make sure that you let us know and share the show with your friends. You can visit us at iTunes or Spotify. Please leave us uh, some helpful comments to make the show better. Also, please do visit us at www.traumaicurounds.com. Be sure to check out the show notes for this particular episode. We're going to have links to several of Dr. Toff's uh, online content and media sites, and you'll definitely want to check that out. In the meantime, we'll talk to you really soon. Keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another. We'll see you next time.